So the 
follow God, keep his commandments, go into the promised land. They had an immediate reward there. It was a land that was flowing. The text says, literally in Hebrew means it's gushing. The land is gushing with milk and honey, with blessings for them. The best produce, produce of their hand and of the land was theirs, laid out before them if they would obey and walk with God. So that was an immediate reward for them. Okay? Right there before their eyes. But even for them, there was still an ultimate reward. An ultimate, a longer term reward. And that was their ultimate rest. Hebrews talks about that, that ultimately they were longing for that rest, heaven, with Christ. So even in the Old Testament, their ultimate salvation wasn't just in doing the law. It was resting and trusting in Christ. Though they could only see him dimly as it is at that point. We get a picture of that with Abraham. Abraham goes to offer his son Isaac years even before this. And he knows God will provide a lamb. So even then we see they are looking forward to the Christ who will come. Just as we look back to the Christ who came, who is ultimately the way that we have access to the eternal promised land. So if that's true, that part about the law, what part does it have to do with us now? What does the law have to do for us? Ceremonial law, we said it's completed in Christ. Civil law, uh, completed with the, when, the, when the church comes about. But they do hold. We say they do hold. And how does this law still hold for us? Simple, simple point. We can boil it down to this. Our obedience. Our adherence to the law affects our relationship with the Lord. Simply put, can you think of a child? A child of his parents, always a child. If that child's rebellious, do they remain a child? Absolutely. If that child's rebellious, does it affect their relationship with the parents? Absolutely. So our adherence, our following, our loving the Lord by obeying his commands affects our relationship. And I want us to see one other point in the first couple verses here. And you don't see this in, in the English, but in, in the Hebrew, what's going on here, Moses addresses Israel part of the time in the plural and part of the time in the singular. What does that mean? Part of the time he's addressing them as a group, a covenant community. Part of the time he's addressing them as individuals. How does that apply to us? Do we need to hear that? Absolutely. Here in America, Okay, as, as we are inclined often to be individualistic, me monster type of Americans where it's all about me, it's my job, my car, my time, my vacation that I've earned, or even my ministry here in the church that I'm doing, we often need to hear that, no, there's a much bigger picture. It's not just about you. It's about what God is doing through his people. So there's that part that applies to us. But then there's also the flip side, where sometimes the Bible speaks to us as individuals and gets in our face and says, you know, this is a time where you, young person, you need to own the faith for yourself. It's time for you to stop just coasting and depending on your parents' faith. You need to own it and trust it for yourself. It's time for we as Christians need to stop hiding and step out. Maybe share the gospel. Maybe they should just be real with others. Or it could be calling us to stop looking at things that we shouldn't. 
God. There are individual calls and there are corporate calls that God makes to his people. So if we wanted to sum this up, here's what we could do, boil this down, boil this down to this. Here's what covenant theology is. You often hear that uh, important term, but it's basically saying, God is my God, God is our God. God is my God, God is our God, and we are his people. Lots of possessives in that, but that's essentially covenant theology in a nutshell. Covenant theology is God calling a people, making a people to be his own, that he can bless and to make his people. And so when we read God's laws, we don't want to read them as a bunch of individual do this, don't do this. It should always be read in the context of a loving, holy God who is making a people to be his own, to be his covenant people. So that, that introduction in a sense that Moses gives in the first three verses takes us, if you will, up to a base camp. We're now at a base camp. We're now looking at the peak, the pinnacle of the Old Testament. Verse 4 right here, many would say is the high point, the peak of the Old Testament. This verse, verse 4, many Jews even today will recite this twice a day, morning, evening, the Shema. They repeat it. They want this verse on their lips as they die. We as Christians need to realize, therefore, the importance of this. Since all the Old Testament pointed to Christ, this verse, this text, is just as important for us. In fact, an interesting thing about this verse, as it was being copied, and what I mean is this, when scribes would take this verse, and they're looking at older transcripts, and they're copying it down, at some point along the, the way, what the, what the um, scribes started doing was, they would take the first letter of the first verse and the last letter of the last word in this verse, and they would bold them, highlight them, calling out the importance of this text, almost putting parentheses around it, saying, this is a testimony, this is important, do not miss this. And what it says, verse 4 starts off, Shema Yisrael, hear, Shema, hear, O Israel. Now, simple question for us. What does the word hear mean? Give me another synonym for hear. Listen. Good answer. Not right. In Hebrew, <laughs> I tricked you. In Hebrew, when we say when we hear hear, you want to think obey. Hear, obey. Go look in your Bible later and see the connection between hear and obey where it shows up often in the same verse. So the point is this. In Hebrew, you had Shema, hear, Shemar, obey. Same root, a connection there. Hear and obey. You ever heard somebody say to you, if you're not looking, you're not listening. We, with our body language, often give the, the, the uh, we, we can show whether we're listening and whether we're going to obey later. Speaking to a child and they're doing this, you know. They may be hearing it, they may be listening, but there's going to be no obedience in that later. But the Bible is saying, when we hear, we should obey. Got it? Nod, like it's clear. Hearing and obeying. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what, what was it they were supposed to hear? All right, what was it that we were supposed to hear in this? This verse begins with a claim, not a command. 
hope you see the, the, the problem with that statement. But so we've got all these gods running around all over the place. And God's saying, I am the one. I am sovereign over these. So we've got to fix them. It matters that the Lord is one. Then we have to hear that the Lord is the Lord Almighty. And, and for me, this, this, this is a fascinating one. This is really, really good. Um, Mind, 
furthermore, when we see it, the reference to the love of God, I'm going to fill in your blanks here. The love of God is closely related to fear and reverence. Love of God is closely related to fear and reverence. Not fear of punishment so much as fear as in an awe and a reverence. It is manifested, we show it by love and service. We show it by love, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We show it by loyalty and service. Let's stop there. We show it, it's manifested in loyalty and service. And that's real important for us to understand with respect to love. So as we apply this, maybe we think this. We might think, all right, I get what you're saying, but I'm struggling right now.
One other piece about the heart that we see in verse 6. Verse 6 says that God's laws are to be on our hearts. When we talk about loving Him with our heart, soul, and mind, that means that God's love is to be on our hearts. And in this case, the heart means that this love is reflected in a careful, sustained obedience. Keeping on, keeping on. Now, the question is, how will that happen without an effort? How will that happen without an effort? Now, there are absolutely times where we sit and rest and trust and be still and know that you are God. Absolutely do that. In fact, <laughs> think of that this morning as I was leaving. Uh, Donna was blow drying her hair and she was singing. Uh, she was worshiping God while she was blow drying her hair. And I was headed out and I was about to tell her, do you know what's going on downstairs right now? <clears throat> uh, well, uh, you'll find out. If you need Jesus first, you're going to see what the children are doing. I'm not interrupting you right now. You need this time in order to laugh. So there are absolutely times where we need that. But the point is also, as far as being a disciple, that there are times where it takes effort. If we're going to pour ourselves into our job, we're going to pour ourselves into doing various other things, Maybe it's to memorize scripture like we did back in our early years in our faith. Maybe if you're a redeemer, it's to participate in a, in, a, in a Sunday school class where there's some excellent teaching for one of the Annex classes so that we can be uh, fed. Uh, or to engage in a life group if you're not in a life group. There's value to bumping up against people in a similar stage or a different stage of life. Absolutely to doing that. Maybe it's to find a mentor into us or to mentor others. There are many things that we can do that help us to grow as disciples. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that this is uh, earning anything as far as salvation goes, not legalism by any means. And the way to see that is simply this. All those things I said are aids to a relationship, aids to the relationship. They're not the relationship itself. Discipleship's a journey. Randy Pope says this. He says, the journey is about our relationship with him, not our attempt to appease him. That would be legalism. It's not to appease him. It's to please him. That's what we're after here. If you keep that in mind, you steer clear of legalism. In other words, we want to please the Lord because of the relationship, that covenant relationship with him. Unless we think this is Old Testament stuff. Absolutely, this shows up in the New Testament. The passage that Dean read at the beginning. Jesus took this same passage essentially here and said, This points to me. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Third point what does a disciple do? The disciple hears, the disciple obeys, doesn't just keep it in. It's not just for me. I teach it, I spread it. Moses mentioned children earlier in the passage, he comes back from now. We are to teach it, but the neat thing about that verse is it doesn't just mean teach, it, it, it conveys impressing or sharpening, engraving repeatedly on them. So it's almost that concept of catechizing and saying it's going to take some work to teach, uh, to pass things along. And then he fleshes that out further because he talks about how do you do it, when do you do it? He says, do it with 
said, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. You just heard what we just talked about in another spot. He heard it, he studied it, he observed it, then he obeyed it, and then he taught it to others. So again, a disciple hears, obeys, teaches. So our call this morning, discipleship, okay, a call to discipleship. Discipleship is hard. It's hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's good. It's hard, but it's good. And God knows that. And that's one of the reasons he said he, he doesn't have us do it alone. In the Proverbs, he says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's not the pointing to Christ. Ultimately, Christ is with us and helping us. That's the gospel there, is that we're not called to discipleship in and of our own efforts. That's not what it's all about. Christ is with us. If he desires that for us, he's going to help us. And one of the ways he often does that is through community. He helps us through community, through others. Thomas Bacon a uh, Christian writer, philosopher back, I think, late 1500s, early 1600s. Listen to this interesting thing he said. He said, those who lack friends to open themselves up to are cannibals of their own hearts. You want to open yourself up to someone, your heart gets eaten up by yourself. Communicating of a man's self to his friends doubles the joys and cuts the griefs in half. Doubles the joys cuts the griefs in half. So what does the Bible say? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You, you can double the joy when you share the grief and you're cut in half. And he finishes with this. He says, friends who are wise counselors are especially needed when pain runs deep and emotions run high. Talking about the value of the companionship in a discipleship type of environment. Now, discipleship takes place in a lot of different ways through teaching, preaching, friendship, communion, those kinds of things. Here is the very simple do takeaway application for us this morning that I would call us to. It's simply this find a mentor. In what sense do I mean here? Find someone who can help you, help me in my walk with the Lord. So often we see others where we see evidences of grace in someone else's life. Ask them, will you help me? Will you pray for me with this? It's not saying, okay, you're now committed to be in a relationship with me where we're meeting two hours every day. And no, just every once in a while, will you meet with me? Will you share? 